0: Well, our text this morning actually reminded me of an episode in the life of King David. The prophet Nathan came in, you'll remember, and he, he talked to David and he sought his advice on the situation that has arisen where there was a, a rich man with many sheep, and he had uh, found this poor man with just one sheep, and he wanted the sheep, and he used the sheep for his own purposes. And he asked David, what should I do about this rich man who has robbed this poor man? And, of course, you'll remember the way that David responds. He becomes enraged, and he says, I think that man deserves death, and he should pay him back four times what he's taken. Well, that is when we hear the famous response of the prophet Nathan to David, you are the man. And what he meant by that was that story was really just a metaphor for King David who had killed Uriah the Hittite, one of his protectors who risked his life regularly for him. A man who had but one wife, Bathsheba, while King David had all that he wanted. And and King David decided to take his one wife and then murder Uriah to cover up his sin. And in that moment, what David recognized was that he had been so blind as he was casting judgment on this hypothetical person that he didn't realize what a sinner he himself was. I think we get the same kind of imagery when we come to the book of Romans chapter two. In the episode that we're looking at today, what we find is, is that Paul has been speaking over the last 15 verses of Romans one about the Gentiles who are immoral idolaters, they are without excuse and presently experiencing the wrath of God in their own lives. But what we find here in our text this morning is that Paul is shifting his attention from those Gentiles who have been absolutely uh, engulfed in sin towards the Jews. Now you'll remember that he has just declared that the just wrath of God is revealed presently on the Gentiles. And you'll also remember that the Jews in this particular church that Paul is speaking to, uh, they have just recently returned to tense relationships in and, and what is now a mostly Gentile church in Rome. And if you read Jewish writings closely that were written at the time of this very letter, writings like the writings of Solomon that were somewhere around you know, the mid-first century B.C., You'll find that a lot of those things that we were finding Paul say about those Gentiles, what sinners they were, were really just kind of your normal, standard, run-of-the-mill Gentile bashing that you would have seen Jews say about Gentiles of the day. You can almost imagine as Paul was reading this letter and he was talking about the the Gentiles, the Jews are sitting there saying, you know, get them, Paul. Like, they they need to hear this. And yet, he switches pronouns in chapter 2. From they to you. And Paul is signaling that he is shifting his attention from those immoral idolaters to the religious moralists, the Jews, who he says are actually storing up wrath themselves for the last day, a greater day of wrath that is to come. Now, these verses really open with uh, what we would call a diatribe, where Paul is sort of imagining that he is speaking to a a kind of opponent and he's answering objections to what he has to say, and he's trying to basically sort of address those and then give them a greater clarity about the nature of the gospel. Now, what we're gonna find here is that he's going to show that we all face an impartial judge on the day of wrath. That's our big idea if you wanna write that down. We are all going to face an impartial judge on the coming day of wrath. Now, we see this first in verses one to two. And here what we find is that there is no excuse for judges who are also perps. There is no excuse for judges who are also perps. Now that therefore that begins verse 1 is actually telling us that this is in some ways related to what's just happened in Romans 1, to 32. But I think that what's happening is Paul is kind of shifting gears, he just spent those 15 verses unpacking how the Gentiles are without excuse. But here he's returning to the Jews in verse 1, and he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now this section is focusing on judging. A word that, just like in English, can mean anything from being critical of, one, of a person to making a judicial declaration in a court of law and sentencing someone. Now, you might be chuckling to yourself as you read this, if you're thinking closely, because it might look like Paul judges the Jews for judging, which means he himself is guilty of being a judge. He highlights here, though, I think something that is very nuanced that we want to make sure that we hold on to. He's not just talking about judging in general. You'll notice that he highlights a particular kind of judging. He says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, Did you catch the problem? The judges are also perps. Now, you might be thinking, what is a perp? Well, I grew up on Law and Order where Ice-T played Finn, and he was always looking to get guilty perps, people who were perpetrators who committed crimes, and here we find that the judges are not these bastions of judicial righteousness, but instead, they are committing the same kinds of crimes that they are judging others for. Now, maybe the Jews didn't practice idolatry and homosexuality broadly, but they likely did commit the sins that he just mentioned in Romans 1:29 to 31. They were full of sin. Now, don't miss this. The Jews here saw themselves as moral authorities, who are able to see the sins of others with a kind of 20-20 precision, but they are simultaneously blind to their own sins. Do you see that? They execute others for the same things they excuse themselves for. And in passing these judgments, it reveals that they actually have a, a knowledge of what is right and wrong. And in doing so, because they're doing the same things, they are actually simultaneously condemning themselves. In fact, that word that he uses for condemning is from the same word for judge, but it's an intensification of judgment, almost saying that they are more guilty, more culpable because of the judgments that they are laying down. Now, why? Well, I think it's because Paul, as a Jew, wants to explain what we find in verse 2, that we know We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That word for rightly falls actually comes from the word aletheia, for truth, and so here he is saying that the truth, when you are measured up against it, O Jew, you are found wanting. See, Paul says God is not like the perp judges. Do you see God's character on display here? He's, he's pointing to it. And he says he's not like these perp judges. God is the righteous judge who judges all rightly according to the truth. Now, the perp judges of his day saw others very clearly. They are sinners. And they judge all rightly according to God's standards when it's about others, but they are blind to what the truth says about themselves. They are what we would call elsewhere in Scripture self-deceived. They are delusional. They look like—they don't look like the pictures of justice that we draw, like uh, Lady Justice. You've probably seen that picture of Lady Justice where she has the blindfold on, meaning that she is impartial, not judging based on the appearance of people. She has the the weighing scale showing that she is carefully balancing right and wrong, fairly and justly. She carries the dagger because she wants to quickly execute a righteous sentence. That's not what these guys look like. They don't look like Lady Justice, and they don't look like God. See, these verses, they might remind you of one of the most popular verses in the Bible at first blush. Uh, Our culture's favorite Bible, I think, Bible verse of the day is... Uh, Matthew 7 verse 1 where Jesus says judge not lest you be judged you probably heard that quoted all over the place and when you look at this you you need to, to ask yourself is that really what Jesus means don't judge anything ever now we hear this used all the time in fact just this last week I read an article that was talking about Don Lemon he's an anchor for CNN News and he was responding to the, the Vatican's refusal to bless same-sex unions. And he, he said, they need to do what the Bible and Jesus actually said. To love your fellow man and judge not lest you be judged. And later he went on to say, God is not about hindering people or even judging people. Now, did you catch that? He says, Jesus and the Bible say, you should not judge Because God does not judge. Is that what the Bible says, though? Well, I think context matters. And you'll remember in Matthew, just a few verses later, in verse 4, he goes on to explain a particular kind of judging as well. He is talking about judgmental Jewish leaders there. And he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice what? The log that is in your own eye. Doesn't that sound pretty familiar to our verse this morning? See, Paul and Jesus both are highlighting a particular type of judging, a judging that is blind to one's own need for mercy before the divine judge. See, these judges are not blindfolded. They are farsighted. And here's what I mean by that. A farsighted person is someone who sees things far away very clearly. But as they come closer to them, it becomes more blurry. And I think these judges are the kinds who see the sins of others far away, oh man, with like eagle-eyed precision. But as sin gets closer to them, things get fuzzy, the rules get blurry. It's kind of confusing as to whether or not they have sinned or not. They are pretty confident that they have not. As we look at this, what we find is something about the nature of the judgment that both Jesus and Paul are speaking about. They're talking about a delusional kind of judgment that does not realize that the truth that they are using to judge others simultaneously condemns themselves. In fact, as I was thinking about this point, I I at first had written down quickly titling this point Sin makes us stupid, but I thought that might be too in your face, so I changed it to the present title. But isn't that true? Doesn't sin make us so dumb? We're so smart and intelligent with giving wise counsel to others, but when it comes to ourselves, how quickly we can forget those things. But that is what the Jews are doing, and then some, in a very unique way. Now. If you're wondering about, like, you know, what are illustrations of this? Like, we see illustrations of this all around. Uh, I could give you an illustration from my own life, but you know, it's it's easier to see others. Uh, I I remember one time, and and this is not, uh, you know, a funny illustration at all. uh, There was a, a mom who was always judging other women in the church very vocally about those who need to dress more modestly, young Christians, new Christians, other Christians with different sort of uh, understanding of what modesty looked like. There's always judging and even correcting and fixing others. And later discovered that she was simultaneously talking to another woman that she met in a zombie chat room and was thinking about leaving her family for that woman. We are so blind ourselves to our own sins when we are not spending time regularly gazing at God, the only true just judge in his word, when we're not taking walks in God's creation and marveling at his power on display and what he has made, when we re- refuse to, to worship with the people of God who have been born again by the power of God, or when we, invite other, we don't invite other Christians to help us see our blind spots. we judge, when we judge without mercy, we've proudly elevated ourselves above others. I mean, isn't that what happens when we're judgmental? When we come with a judgment that is without mercy, it is because we have lost sight of our own need of mercy, because we have lost sight of how truly just and righteous God is, and how small and pathetic our righteousness is left to ourselves apart from His work in us. So who helps you? see yourself who helps you with your self-deception are you better at seeing and helping others see their blind spots than you are at seeking to help others help you find your own we need to be about finding self-deception in our own lives but notice in verses three to five paul says not only is there no excuse for these hypothetical judges or these hypocritical judges he says second There's also no escape for presuming on God's kindness. Now, Paul also asks here a couple of clarifying questions. It helps us ratchet up more clearly what he's talking about. Uh, You'll notice that he asks the first question, do you think that you will escape God's judgment when you do the same stuff? Do you, verse 3, suppose, oh man, oh man, this, this hypothetical hypocritical judge do you suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of god so he just said there's no excuse now he says do you think that you're going to escape now the short answer is yes yes they do they think they will escape and yet they do the same things that they they see others doing who they think will not escape now why is that well i think question two clarifies he says that you are presuming upon the, the riches of God's kindness in this question. He says this, he asks, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's con- kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, Paul understands the Jews look to the Mosaic covenant for some kind of covenantal privilege. We can see this in his use of the words kindness, forbearance, and patience. That word for kindness is a word that Paul mentions twice in verse 4. And it's often used in the Psalms. And when the psalmist use it, it describes God's goodness to his covenantal people Israel. And then forbearance. That word means the ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing your temper. You're able to be very patient and forbearing with others. And then patience is a, is a central description of God in the Old Testament. In fact, when God is revealing himself to Moses and his people, and he's making a covenant with them, he says in Exodus 346 to 7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, the same word for patience, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. These verses are really fascinating. We don't have time to spend too much time here, but that same word for slow to anger is the Greek uh, word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for patience in Romans 2.4. And these Jews, they, they seem to have remembered that God is patient. And by that, they they seem to understand that that means that God forgives their iniquity, like he says in Exodus. But it seems that they forgot the second part of that verse, where he by no means clears the guilty. In other words, he is just, and every crime receives a just punishment. And it seems that these Jews in some way have presumed on God's kindness towards them while understanding that those outside of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, would not be excused for their sins like they would. But does God's kindness here for the Jews, he says, it leads you to presume, you presumed on my, my kindness and you have not repented as you ought. And though this is specifically for the Jews, I wonder this morning what your response to God and his character is. Does his kindness towards you lead you to presume or to repent? You know, I think that we can presume on God's kindness as well. I know that in my heart that I have to constantly fight that with truth about God but I think that we presume on God's kindness when we sometimes maybe misinterpret the lag time between our sin and the consequences of that sin, interpreting it as God's absence or lack of concern rather than his patience. You know, maybe you've found yourself, maybe you find yourself in sin today and you think to yourself, well, God is gracious and he hasn't really like dropped down and done anything yet. I don't see his justice rolling and so it must be okay you've misinterpreted his kindness and his patience and his forbearance with you as something that means that it's okay we presume when we elevate the perfection of god's goodness above his justice we think yeah i know that god's just but he's also good and because he's good he won't be just that's not the way that god speaks of his justice He is good because he is just and just because he is good. It's not as though we find that God is better because he is less just, that would make him worse. God is perfect in all of his perfections. We presume on God when we judge others for committing the same sins we do, thinking that God's word doesn't apply to us in the same way. We presume when we think that grace means freedom to sin without consequences, or that coming to church, growing up in a Christian family, getting baptized and the list goes on that these things mean that we are in a better place apart from faith in christ our presumptions have half true mantras and we hear them all around us Uh, half true mantras like once saved always saved or we're all sinners and all or you know jesus just wants me to be happy and all of these are, are presuming on the grace of God when understood in the light that they're often used. See, we we justify ourselves while condemning others. Don't miss this. We we should not presume and judge others, but repent ourselves. That's what we are called to in these verses, to have an eagle-eyed sort of focus on our own hearts. See, God's kindness should lead us to repentance. That word for repentance that he uses is a a word that means to, to change direction And in particular, turn from living for anything else other than God to living for God. And you'll notice that here, God's kindness is not a fast pass to justify sin. His kindness and patience is aimed at causing you to turn from running from God to Satan, to running to God from Satan, sin, and the world. In fact, James 4, 7 to 8 says this. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. L- let me just encourage you this morning. If you, in some way, have been presuming on God's grace and you feel stuck in your sin and like it's been okay, don't walk to God. Run. Run from your sin to God. Get help kill it before it kills you. Why? Because losing sight of the justice of God today has greater last day implications. Did you see what he says in verse 5? He says your your non-repentant heart is storing up wrath for the last day. That's what he tells these Jews. See, Paul says in verse 5, but because of your hardened, impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the last day the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, there are a couple of things that strike me here. First, Paul highlights the heart is the heart of the issue yet again. You'll remember that the Gentiles' hearts were darkened in 121 and that they were heartless in Romans 131. But here we find that the Jews, their hearts were hard and impenitent, which literally means non-repentant. Right, what was God's kindness supposed to do? Make them repentant. What are these Jews' hearts doing? Not repenting. See, God tells hard-hearted Israel to circumcise their hearts in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Do you remember that? God told his people, I don't want you just to circumcise your flesh, that symbol of the seal of the the old covenant, but instead he tells them there, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But later in Deuteronomy 36, God promises that after the exile, this people who have not circumcised their heart, he makes a promise. He says, The Lord your God himself will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. They needed new hearts. These Jews did not yet experience this promise. Their hard hearts highlighted that they had not experienced those new hearts, those circumcised hearts and the Holy Spirit that was promised in that new and better covenant that the promise the prophets promised was coming. Not only were the hearts the heart of the issue, notice also here in verse five, that while Jews envisioned themselves as storing up good things for the last day, Paul says they are storing up wrath for their unrepentant sin. Now, the Old Testament prophets like Joel, they they talked about God's wrath coming on a great day periodically in their present experiences. There were many days of the Lord. But all of those days of the Lord were really pointing towards a greater day of the Lord, a day that would be a day of salvation for some and wrath for others. Well, here's what's terrifying. Romans 1 has, has experienced exposed the inexcusable sins of the immoral idolaters but here paul points to the inexcusable sins of the religious moralist they look different they they seem to to revel in using god's law as a bat for others while being blind to their own sins they are blind guides now here's what's fascinating I used to to look at legalism as a lesser kind of sin than licentiousness because it looks more religious. Now, here's what I mean by legalism. When I say legalism, I am not talking about obeying God's word. Obeying God's word everywhere in the Bible is presented as a very good thing. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. You will obey his word. When I talk about legalism, I'm talking about a kind of life that sort of makes extra rules. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do, right? And by these things, you will know that you are in with the people of God and can have confidence when Jesus comes back. Here's the problem. The Bible does not say that. And so when we come to God's word and we look at, uh, we look at what it says, legalism is not, I mean, uh, lo- obeying God's word is not bad, but being a legalist and creating these other rules on top of rules that you're taking comfort in, or taking comfort in something other than God himself, that is not what the Bible teaches. Here's the problem here, though. Notice that God sees to the heart of the person who's both a legalist and living a licentious sinful life. And he says, both the religious moralist who presumes on God and the immoral idolater who runs from God are equally without excuse and escape on the final day, which he here calls the day of wrath. Now, I think this is just one of those places in Scripture where we just need to be reminded that it is not religion that saves us, it is God who saves us. It is not the functions and the equipment of religion that saves us, it is God's Son, Jesus, who saves us. But notice here that Paul highlights the impartiality of God on the last day in verses 6 to 11. Third, God is impartial, repaying each according to his works on the last day. That's what he says in verses 6 to 11. Uh, you'll notice that these verses are really just highlighting the implications of God as the impartial judge on the last day. And he begins in verse 6. He says this, He will render to each one according to his works. And at this point in Paul's argument, I think the emphasis is, to each one. In other words, he's he's wanting to show us that both to the Jew and to the Gentile, to all, he is impartial in his judgments. And here's how he uh, unfolds it. He says he's going to render to each one according to his works. Now, these are words that you would find all over the place in the Old Testament. So, for instance, if you were to look in um, uh, Proverbs twenty-four twelve or Psalm sixty-two twelve, they quote this verbatim. And in fact, Paul is likely quoting these verses. Uh, there, in Psalm sixty-two twelve, it says, "For you, O God, will render to a man according to his work." So, Paul does not address the question of what this means as far as whether some Christians will have more square footage in heaven or not, right? That, that's not the question that he's trying to answer here. That God is fair in his judgments, he will render to each according to what they deserve, and so therefore you have been this faithful until so you get this big a house in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. You'll notice that here, he is specifically looking to the ultimate end, either eternal life or wrath and fury. Those are the two options. Now he describes this by looking at two different kinds of people. The first is those who are patient on God. Notice what verse seven says. He says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But did you catch what patiently waiting on God looks like? Doing good, obeying his word, trusting what he has said, believing that Obedience to God, holiness, is the only true way to happiness now and forever. Not disobeying God, but obeying his word, loving him. See, they are seeking for glory and honor and immortality in verse 7. And if you look down to verse 10, you'll notice that he adds peace or shalom to that list. That is that, that, that longing of every Hebrew heart that one day God would eliminate all of his uh, all of the enemies of his people that he would free them and deliver them for all external enemies that they would have a kind of holistic joy and peace in the creation that God had created that all things would work as they, as they should apart from all of the consequences of the sin and the fall he would restore all things and verse 8 clarifies that they don't seek glory and honor for themselves apart from God but In God, that they might reflect His glory and honor. See, Paul's point is is that God rewards those who patiently obey Him with eternal life, immortality, and and life in Christ. And when this final righteous judgment drops, they will find life. See, life today has something to say about the last day. But there's a second person that he describes here. And that is those living for selfish ambition in verse 8. Notice what he says there. He says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, these self-seekers, they are better described as those who are selfishly ambitious. It is not that they are looking out for their best. Seeking God is our best. They are looking for good apart from God. They are looking to make much of themselves apart from God's glory apart from his truth. In fact, the scripture says here very clearly, they are those who do not obey the truth. Now, Paul would not affirm the idea, I think, if I'm reading this rightly, of, you know, your truth, my truth, my, you know, that fits really nicely alongside God's truth. We can just all have a party of truths. No, he's saying that there is The truth, according to God, the way that he has revealed himself to us. And notice here that that it seems to say that the quickest way to lose your life is to try to find it apart from God. They don't submit to God, but obey unrighteousness. There really isn't an option. You're, You're going to serve something, either God or unrighteousness. One leads to life and the other to wrath and fury. In fact, the words for wrath, wrath usually speaks of God's internal wrath in the, Old Test- the New Testament. And the, the word for fury here speaks of an extroverted wrath that comes out on others. And God's anger here, both, they are kindled against all sin and unrighteousness. In fact, you almost get this picture that the, the internal and the external become experienced so much in unison that there is no difference anymore. It is a fullness of God's wrath that is on display. See, God's anger is kindled against all sin and unrighteousness, and sometimes it expresses itself in real time in history, but will only fully reveal itself in all of its power without any relenting forevermore on the day of God's wrath that has come. That's a day that will never end. In fact, verses 9 to 11 highlight the nature of the way that the impartial judge will judge the Jew first and then the Gentile. Now here he comes back to the nature of this judgment and its impartiality. notice what he says in verses nine to 11. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. See, Paul repeats what he says of those who obey God and those who do not follow God, By repeating that refrain, did you catch it? To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. He's emphasizing that on the last day, the covenant of old, the covenants of old, will not save the Jews because God shows no partiality. Now Doug Moose says the word for partiality here is a word that means receiving the face. It means to treat someone differently based on their outward appearance. We find here that God is not that kind of judge. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, as Herman Bavinck did, he observed that scripture reveals God's impartiality in a number of ways. He shows that God doesn't hold the guilty innocent in Exodus 27. He does not spare the wicked in Ezekiel 7:4, or regard persons or take bribes in Deuteronomy 10:17. God's judgments are impartial. Job 13:6-2. God is righteous. He himself is righteous, and so are his judgments in Psalm 119, 137. And here, the punishment of the wicked is often ascribed to God's righteousness. God is just to the alien and to the citizen, male and female, rich and poor. He doesn't judge according to the face, and here Paul says that even, that even extends to the Israelites. Now, naturally, I know this probably creates all kinds of questions for you about the people of Israel in the Bible, and uh, Paul's going to start to unpack that as he goes, especially when he gets to chapters 9 to 11, so we'll deal with that there. But I'm sure you have another question that should be sort of like rattling around in your minds. Is Paul saying that we receive eternal life based on works? Well, we know that in Romans 3.20, Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So that can't be what he's trying to say. Now, others, as they look at this, they, they say, well, maybe Paul's speaking of a hypothetical reality here. That's what most people say. In other words, if anyone did good works perfectly and obeyed God in every way, they would receive eternal life. The problem is no one ever does that. And that might be right, too. It's true that no one, Jew or Gentile, has lived justly in the flesh and mind, deed, desire, and action except for one. Of course, then again, it also might point to our need for the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we can obey God. Because I believe that the Scriptures do teach that we are able, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to obey God. But at this point in the letter, I think Paul's point is this, that neither Jew nor Gentile will escape God's just impartial wrath on the last day. So let me close with some applications. First, we need to understand, I believe, that as we come to these verses, that they ought to feel weighty, maybe even hopeless, that there is no one who is righteous, that there is no one who on that last day is not not going to face God's wrath left to themselves. But if you remember in in, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 11, there's a similar scene, but in the midst of this scene of God's judgment, we find that there's hope of one greater than King David from the line of Jesse. In Isaiah 11, we are promised that there is one who will come, one who is led by the Spirit of God, one who judges not as man judges, but one who is able to see to the very heart. This man, this king, would be a righteous judge. And the man that Isaiah foresees, I believe in Isaiah 11, one to five, is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who came and obeyed God in every way. In fact, we find in First John 2, 1 John 2:1 that we who are Christians know that we have hope before God not based on anything special in us but based on the advocate that we have First John 2, 1 John 2:1 says this I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin okay you shouldn't sin but if anyone does sin we who are in Christ we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous one You have a righteous advocate in Jesus Christ. The only hope we have before that great day of wrath is the righteous one. When when God says, when Paul says, you know, oh man, like who amongst you are righteous? We find the answer in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the man. I'm the man. I've obeyed God in every single way. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have that righteousness accredited to our account. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Uh, As Christians, we look to Christ. As non-Christians, we look to Christ. As a church, I believe there are implications for us as well. Trinity Bible Church, I, I want us to be a church where people feel safe confessing sin and putting those sins to death because we understand not just how patient God has been with us, but how patient God is today with us. We know that we are not standing in right standing with God because of our own merits, but because of Christ's righteousness. and It is only because of him that God shows us his infinite patience. As a church, we want to be the kind of people that know that we wake up every single morning to fresh mercies on our doorstep. Every morning, God raining down from heaven, mercy upon us. Now, we have a sweet community here. I know that because when we do membership interviews and we talk to people about why they love our church, you know what they talk about most often? The sweetness of our people. Well, How do we encourage and continue that kind of culture? Well, I think it means that each of us Individually, needs to make sure that we are reveling in God's patience on us daily, coming to fresh understandings of the fact that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And as we do that, I believe that we in turn will seek to obey God and show patience with others. So let us understand the patience of God with us so that we might be patient with others. And Christian, I think we know at least what Paul's not saying here. He's not saying that obedience to God doesn't matter. And and here's the problem, I I feel like there is this message, not only outside of the church, but coming from people who claim Christ, who say that obedience, if, if we are like desiring to be obedient to Jesus or requiring obedience or saying that like we should stop sinning, that in some ways we are misrepresenting the God of the Bible. We read about what Paul has to say about God. We find that he is a just judge, that obedience matters, that righteousness matters. And the new covenant in Christ says the same thing as the old covenants, but it focuses on the person of Jesus. In fact, in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. In other words, if we really want to, to obey God, we have to do it in Christ. It means we need to put our faith in Christ. It means we need to trust Christ as the one who is our righteous standard, and we need to seek to obey him, obey what Jesus has said. So if you feel weighted down by your sin today, again, don't forget 1 John 2:1. I am writing these things to you that you might not sin, but if you do sin, remember this, Christian, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is arguing your case for you. See, only Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our account, and he did so that we might obey him, so that we might live righteous lives, the righteous lives that he created us to, that, li- that lead to holiness and happiness forevermore. So he wants you to be righteous and holy and to find your joy in him. So as you think about that today, what areas of your life are you blind to? How are you going to find those areas? What is it that you need to repent of to turn afresh to Christ? And finally, if you're not a Christian, know that we are all under God's just wrath left to ourselves. God will not deliver you from his just wrath because you're a good person. You know that that God just kind of grades on a scale, and that you're not like that bad, at least not as bad as the others, those Gentiles or whatever. He, he's not going to deliver you from his just wrath because your parents are Christians and because your family has just gone to church forever. In fact, the late R.C. Sproul wrote an excellent book but I think the title is just pregnant with meaning. He says, "Saved from what? Now, you could read the 300 pages, but I'll give you a a quick summary of the book in two sentences. He says, we are saved from God by God. Now, how are we saved? Well, we are only saved from God's just wrath by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, God's righteous Son, who lived a perfectly righteous life, died on the cross for all of our sins and was raised from the dead to declare that the difference between heaven and hell, between eternal life and wrath and fury, is whether or not we truly put our faith in the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. That means not believing that Jesus died for your sins. Not only that, not only that Jesus died for sins in general, means not only believing that God, I mean, that Jesus died for sins and that Jesus died for your sins, but also a, a third aspect of true faith is this, that you lean into Jesus with your life that you are living for him, that you are seeking to obey him, that you are living according to that obedience of faith that Paul opened up his letter in Romans 1 with. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, there's no hope on the last day for anything except for wrath and fury, but if you have put your faith in Christ, he promises you eternal life and joy forevermore. If you haven't done that, do it today. Don't leave here without doing it. Let's pray.